other side of midnight with Frank Morano. History in every century records an act that lives forevermore. We'll recall as into line we fall the thing that happened on Hawaii shore. Let's remember Pearl Harbor as we go to meet the foe. Let's remember Pearl Harbor as we did the Alamo. We will always remember how they died for liberty. Let's remember Pearl Harbor and go on to victory. The great Sammy Kay asking us to remember Pearl Harbor. That is what so many people do every December 7th, a date which at least one president told us would live in infamy. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Here to help us break that down, because every year there are fewer and fewer people alive who remember this as a memory, not a historical event. So here to help us break down some of the history of what transpired is David Pietruza. He is an award-winning author and presidential historian whose latest book is Roosevelt Sweeps the Nation, FDR's 1936 Landslide and the Triumph of the Liberal Ideal. David, good morning. It's great to talk with you again. Good to talk to you. Uh, David, I'm going to have you back uh, because I actually like to read the books that you write and ask you questions based on what you've read. But uh, briefly, tell me about your new book, Roosevelt Sweeps the Nation. What uh, Clearly, it's about the election of 1936, but what specific aspect do you focus on in the new book? Well, um, what it is is about how much division there was in the country and while it was a big landslide it was not necessarily going to be a big landslide the depression was still going on 13.9 percent unemployment on election day that makes a difference so fdr had to convince the country was the glass half empty or was it half full And the four years he had been in office previously, he had pretty much convinced the majority of the public that to trust him, if there were mistakes, if things were had to be done further, he would somehow think about it. But the opposition, which was large part uh, populist, uh, Huey Long would have run against him in 1936 if he had not been shot in 1935. Father Coughlin, the radio priest, was stirring things up against him. A lot of people who had been for him in 1932 were against him, like segments of the Democratic Party, the past two Democratic presidential nominees. Uh, there's uh, populists uh, in the Midwest who are upset with his farm policy. And, and of course, there's what's left of the Republican Party. So uh, the early polling, and not even some of the early polling, Frank Gallup 
has Gala, uh, has Alf Landon, the very, very lackluster Republican nominee, ahead in the Electoral College <laughs> in July and says this is going to be one of the closest elections in this century. Well, that didn't turn out to be the case. He wins, carrying 46 states uh, and um, carrying all but eight electoral votes. But it didn't have to be. And we and um, it's also interesting to see how very uh, different the campaigning was, how there are big periods of time when neither of the candidates are campaigning. Roosevelt goes off for two weeks and just just floating around on a boat sailing after the convention. So uh, a lot of differences, a lot of similarities in terms of how people are, are ginned up one against another but also that we don't have the perpetual campaign that we now have. I know uh, I've read many of your books, and I know you've written about figures other than presidents, but you've written about presidents that have been both Democrats and Republicans. You've written about presidential campaigns, including Democrats, Republicans, and third-party people. One of the things that I think tends to frustrate a lot of people who enjoy learning about history is it seems that many historians, they tend to inject their own political views, whatever they happen to be, liberal, conservative, whatever, into a, a writing of history. How challenging is it for you to sort of keep your own politics at bay as you chronicle the history of something that was not too long ago, less than less than uh, 90 years ago? Well, I think there's a very loud inner voice in me that, that forces me to do that. And and there's also I, I feel that there are all these readers maybe looking over my shoulder who are going to mm-hmm. say, yeah, but you didn't mention that, you know. And it's like, okay, that that's worth mentioning. We we really need to know what the context is and what the back and forth is. Um, on, on the other hand, it is a little easier to say say a bad thing about. Oh, Franklin Roosevelt, or Theodore Roosevelt, or whoever, or some, or the Republicans uh, running in 1936. Uh, people don't take as much offense as <laughs> if you say something about your team right now, right. when everyone just goes ballistic. Right. So you you do have that sort of of freedom. Yes, it's easier to throw a biographical punch at uh, Herbert Hoover or FDR than it is Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Yeah, and I, I throw, I, I swing both left and right that way, and 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 in in a way, it's it's it, it's a a detriment because maybe I would be better off in terms of sales if I took a polemical side on these. Things. David, I wrestle with the same thing on the radio. Believe me, I'm glad you chronicle history exactly the way you do. Uh, the latest book is Roosevelt sweeps. Nation, FDR's 1936 landslide and the triumph of the liberal ideal. Uh, talk to me about uh, the Pearl Harbor attack 81 years ago. What did this uh, this attack mean for America, America's involvement in World War II, and how did it transform life in America in general? Well, America didn't want to go to war. And the war had been going on since 1934, 1939, excuse me. And um, we've been inching closer and closer to it. We had Lend-Lease where we were supplying the Allies, both good and bad, i.e. Britain and, uh, and, and, and China and the bad, uh, the Soviet Union, with uh, the arms necessary to combat the, uh, um, the uh, Nazis, the Japanese. But what uh, we were 
with the Japanese inching closer and closer to war as the Japanese become more and more aggressive. You know, first they take Manchuria in 1931. Then they invade uh, mainland China. Then one of the flashpoints is that that old hot spot in the world, Vietnam or French Indochina. And they occupy the north. They occupy North Vietnam to to cut off supplies to China in 1940. Then they occupy the rest in 1941, and that's when Roosevelt starts cutting off trade with Japan. Now, they need all kinds of stuff from us. Mostly another hot point is oil, and they need – they get over 90 percent of their oil from us. So when we cut off their um, air, uh, or I mean all their uh, trade, all their foreign currency exchanges, they can't trade with us for anything, but most specifically for oil. And they know they've got to invade even more of Southeast Asia, Malaysia, and Indonesia. And to hamstring us, if we respond to that, then they've got to take out American forces in the Pacific, which most spectacularly, and what we remember most of all, is Pearl Harbor. But much like, okay, then there's January, or December 7th, and then there's 9-11, 9-11 is more than the Trade Center. Mm-hmm. It's also Sh- Shanksville. It's also the Pentagon. And December 7th is more than Pearl Harbor. It's also attack on the Philippines. Mm. Uh, no, so, that's, that's a great a great point and one uh, that uh, I wouldn't have thought to bring up. One of the things that I, I don't know that I fully comprehended, and many of our listeners, I think, probably didn't realize this either, the attack on Pearl Harbor was relatively short, wasn't it? It doesn't last long because, you know, they've got to get in and out from, from their carriers. They've, they've snuck across the Pacific in radio silence, uh, been on the, uh, on the water for, since November. And, and so they have to uh, really – and, and the idea of sneak attack is so important in this. Uh, the fact that they have not declared war on us, that the message is not delivered to us, that they are breaking off negotiations, uh, is, is, is that what we'd call a meme today, sneak attack, sneak attack, sneak attack. And that is why, in part, why the American people are just so livid at this attack, which cost 2,400 uh, American dead uh, another 1,100 wounded. And by the way, half of those dead are on that one battleship, the Arizona. Um, and, and so the Japanese want to hamstring any counterattack uh, on them in the Philippines, in the Dutch East Indies, in, in the China Sea area. And what they think, they don't think they can win a long war. But they think, like the Germans, they think we're soft. They think this is going to, like, you know, well, they're not going to want to have a prolonged war against the Japanese. And so we can get away with this. Well, they're damn wrong because we're a lot tougher than that. And we mm. certainly proved that uh, in all the battles of the Pacific Islands and, and in making the decisions uh, which ultimately led to the atomic bomb. 
One of the look, this is overnight radio and we explore any number of conspiracy theories from the John F. Kennedy assassination to Jimmy Hoffa to the Loch Ness Monster. One of the very consistent conspiracy theories that I think to this day a large number of rank and file Americans believe and it's actually been written about by some fairly Credible historians, people like uh, Charles Beard, John Toland, uh, a few years ago, a fellow named Robert Stinnett, they have said that there is some evidence to suggest that FDR might have known there was going to be an attack on Pearl Harbor before it actually occurred. Based on what you know, based on what's out there in terms of documents that have been released since then, is there any evidence to support this assertion? Well, there's evidence and there's evidence. But let's explain why I swung wide around third base heading for home talking about Pearl Harbor and I swung all around the way to the Philippines. You don't have to sink half the damn American fleet and all of uh, FDR. FDR loved the Navy, loved ships. You didn't have to sink all those Ameri- uh, ships and get all those Americans killed to get us into the war because the Japanese were attacking the Philippines and American possession or territory anyway. Mm. There would have been war anyway. So as as they as Gerald Posner said in regard to the Kennedy assassination case closed. <laughs> Got it. So um one of the things that former president Herbert Hoover who you've also written about said to uh to to friends was essentially that um you know you and I know that this continuous putting pins in rattlesnakes finally got this country bit. What what Hoover was talking about and what a lot of other people said at the time and since then was that the United States behavior sort of provoked Japan into this sort of attack. I know you alluded to the uh, the stoppage of trade and how dependent Japan was on things like American oil. Is there anything to that, to that notion that America is responsible for pro- provoking this attack? Well, the Japanese would certainly make that case. Mm. And, and they felt that they were backed into a corner, as another president once said, uh, William Howard Taft, when he kept getting uh, hit over the head verbally by, by Theodore Roosevelt, you know, in a, in a, forced into a corner, even, even a, a cornered rat will fight. <laughs> so the Japanese, who were it, saw themselves as cornered rats and had no choice, uh, they they were completely running out of uh, of uh, natural resources and particularly oil. Where if they did not uh, move into Southeast Asia to get that oil, they they would have lost the war very 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 quickly. They would have just literally run out of gas. Now, of course, the question is: Would America have gone to war? Mm-hmm over the Dutch East Indies at that point, were they completely overreacting in that way with the United States? They could have just attacked, um, you know, they could have just attacked uh, Britain and the French and the Dutch, and we might have stood still stood aside. But the Japanese make that same mistake uh, as the Germans do, as, you know, Hitler doesn't have to declare war right. on us, but, but he does. That's another huge mistake on the part of the Axis. You alluded to the mis 
characterization of American toughness by the Japanese, the miscalculation of America's will to fight in this war and win. The, one of the last lines in the film, Tora, 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 is uh, the Japanese saying among themselves that we've awoken a, a sleeping giant. Now, in hindsight, you almost would have to think that the American reaction would be what it was. Uh, that being said, w- were there any forces within the Japanese military or the Japanese government that uh, cautioned not doing this for fear of what the American response would be? There, there were, uh, and it was even within the the military, and and they knew their weaknesses, and and uh, one of the the big Japanese military figures had actually uh, been educated at Harvard around 1920, and was saying, you know, look out for these Americans, uh, as opposed to the uh, the other force, which said we were so weak and soft, much like Hermann Göring was saying. Oh, sure, they can make refrigerators, these Americans, but not tanks and certainly not fight in them. Ha, ha, ha. But this is the same mistake uh, in terms of, of Americans not getting into the game quickly enough or fighting quickly or hard enough that the Germans had made in, in World War One, where, OK, uh, maybe they'll come in, but we'll, we'll win this war by the time they do that. And, and, you know, things will work out. But, you know, they don't. I'm wondering if you could speak to the patriotic fervor that gripped the nation following the Pearl Harbor attacks. There seemed to be a surge in people volunteering to enlist in the military, but even more so than that, there seemed to be a level of nonpartisanship and national unity that even previous wars that America had been involved in really hadn't seen. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, I mean, you take a look at what for drives us into World War One or even the Spanish American War, and these are you know fairly minor incidents in compared to this, uh, but this is this is so egregious uh, that you know there is no question we have to be we have to be combatants we have to take the fight to them, and. I'm not old enough to remember Pearl Harbor per se as a as a real time event, but I certainly remember what it was like in the 1950s as the date on the calendar rolled around, and and what the feeling was like against the Japanese. And I I think I think it, in many senses we were as as head up. Uh, against the Jap- against the Japanese than we were against the Germans, even though the bulk of our war effort went against the Germans and had to go against the Germans. And we took our time, relatively speaking, uh, knocking the Japanese out of the war. Um, it was it was the, the the partisanship, shall we say, against the Japanese was was the was more intense. And it was a horrible war. And not only Pearl Harbor, but what happened to our guys, again, in the Philippines, the it, Bataan Death March, mm. and how horribly they were killed. There were another thousand Americans killed on the Death March after Bataan surrendered mm. and were marched off to the prison camps. And they were killed not only with starvation, uh, but also, also being beheaded along the way, uh, just just shot callously. And another 5,000 of our, our Filipino uh, 
uh, allies died on that. So the Japanese were as uh, as brutal in their own way as as the Nazis uh, in mm. theirs. Uh, David, if you were to pick a film that's the most accurate depiction historically of what occurred on December 7th, is there one that immediately comes to mind? No, I, I'd sort of be, be looking at too much on uh, from memory on mm-hmm. that. So I also try to stay away too much from, from watching historical films because they have to take such license right. that, uh, you know, they they fudge the details quite a bit. And and as a historian, you don't want those those false details to get into your brain and stay there and, and influence your thinking maybe when, when you're writing on that page. As far as you're aware, David, are there any l- people still living who were at Pearl Harbor the day of the attack? Well, I'm, I'm not sure about that either. I mean, it's certainly they, 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 it, we are down to the last leaves on, on the tree mm-hmm. and down to the, uh, you know, what we may, however, be um, not not civil, not military who were there. But I wouldn't be surprised if there were some civilians mm-hmm. in the area that, that might still be alive. And also, I think around 40 civilians were killed that day uh, in Pearl Harbor. Finally, David, I frequently get asked for recommendations for people to buy different books dealing with history or different other subjects that I have an interest in, especially around Christmas time. I've recommended a number of your books on the radio and to friends privately. If you were to pick a book about presidential history, doesn't matter which president, doesn't matter which era, that's written by someone other than you uh, Uh for uh, someone to give or receive as a Christmas gift this year, what would it be? Oh, that's a hell of a question for this hour of the morning. <laughs> we asked the tough questions, David. I, I can't, that is I, the toughest question. Gee whiz, I'm, not, I'm, I'm really not quite sure. Right. Well, you could think on that and uh, come back with an answer next time you're on the show. Meantime, if you're looking for a book for the history lover on your list, check out Roosevelt Sweeps Nation, FDR's 1936 landslide and the triumph of the liberal ideal by David Pietruzza. David, it's always oh, a wait treat. Wait a minute. There's, there's a book which is half on presidential history, which is called The King's Depart, a very forgotten book, and it it really deals with two things. Uh, It's sort of like my 1932 book on U.S. and Germany. And one of them is, one part is in in Germany, and the other part is about um, uh, Woodrow Wilson at uh, Versailles. That's wow. And it's a pretty obscure book, and it's written by a chemical engineer in New Jersey. I love this. Uh, The King's Depart, Richard Watt. You're not an engineer, but a PR guy for a chemical industry or something. And, you know, you don't have to be a Ph.D to do this I well. love this. Richard Watt, The King's Depart. Uh, David, thank you. We'll talk soon. Okay. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on anything we've covered, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.